time, friends that were transitory, kind of came and went. You knew them for a while, and then life's vigories carried them away, moved away, something changed, and you no longer looked at them quite the same way. Or maybe somebody you still feel was a close friend, and yet you're not in contact, but you still have good memories of the relationship, whatever it might have been. So as I ask these questions, there will be different kinds of things that go through your mind. What qualities do you pursue or want in a friend? It's kind of interesting in a way, I was since this was on my mind, the special music we just had from Isaiah 40 mentioned a lot of the qualities of Christ and his attitude toward us. And... Uh, Virtually everything that was said there, well, everything that was said about him, is things we would look for in a friend. What was it? Uh, his kindness, his mercies, his faithfulness, uh, that type of thing we would want in a friend. So it kind of ties in very well with what I had uh, determined to say today. It has been said by some pretty smart people and experienced people, perhaps people with wisdom, that if you have five true friends in the course of a lifetime, you did quite well. Uh, if you start enumerating people that you would consider true friend as opposed to friend, uh, how many would you come up with? You might come up with one or two or three, maybe four or five. Maybe if the stars were lined up just right, you might have had ten. I don't know. And that depends on what you consider a true friend, too. Some might define it pretty closely, and others might expand the circle to include a few more than you might, because you might look at it a little more critically than they do. So we will all have different questions, different thoughts, different variations in friendship. But I think that to human beings who are created to be, to one degree or another, social animals, we've always valued friends, some more than others. You have people who are more the loner types who may not need as many friends. And then you have people who are so dependent they can't get along without having friends around. Uh, so there's, there's extremes. But to one degree or another, I think we've all recognized that a friend is a good thing. Uh, how many we've had or not uh, has no bearing on that particular thought. I'm going back to John 15, which we read every Passover, and he said some things here that I want to use as an introduction to this topic of friendship, because he lays down some basic uh, fundamentals, some basic truths. Now, before we get to the particular ones about friendship in particular, let's start at the beginning of this chapter. Because he's talking to his disciples, with whom he has had a very close relationship here now, uh, 
for three and a half years. And he's giving them a sermon, some teaching, just before he is to go out and die. So these are very, very important words to him uh, in trying to relate to them the last things, the most important things, out of three and a half years of teaching. I'm not going to go all the way through 14 through 17 or 18 to, to get the whole context, but let's get the near context to what he said about friendship. And he starts here in verse chapter 15 by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. So he's establishing a relationship in their minds. Now, he's already told of this in times past, obviously. But here he's giving his parting words, very, very important things to consider. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the one you look to. My father is the husbandman. He is the one who owns the vine. He takes care of the vine. Uh, I may be the vine, but my father is the owner of everything. He's the husbandman. And indeed, Christ never told us to pray to him. I've mentioned that before, but he told us, pray the Father in his name. And uh, I had an argument, well, a discussion at least, with my sister one time. And I says, you're not supposed to pray to Jesus, you know. And she says, oh, yes, you are. I said, show me. Where, where can you find a place in here where it said pray to Jesus? She thought a minute and she couldn't come up with anything. Well, the reason she couldn't is it ain't there. <laughs> he said, pray the Father. So I don't pray to Jesus. I pray to the Father in Jesus' name, by his authority. Every prayer that you pray has to go through Christ to the Father because he is the one who died that we might have access to the Father and there, therefore, everything has to pass through him. So in a larger sense, you're not ignoring him. He's to be our husband, after all. Uh, so you don't ignore him in that sense. But everything you say to the Father goes through him, and he passes on it and hears it and responds to it. And he and the Father are one, and they think exactly alike. So what one thinks, the other thinks. There's no shadow of turning between them. But isn't it nice to be able to talk to the most important being in the universe? Because people couldn't do that until Christ died and rent the veil of the temple in two. And that allowed us all to go into the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, where the Father is. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was only a type of the true Holy of Holies in the heavens. And Aaron could only go in there once a year as the high priest, and Christ designated himself, of course, as our eternal high priest. But he did have high priests of men, and as a type of Christ then, Aaron could only go in there once a year. And he had to cleanse his body, cleanse his clothes, make sure everything was as clean as possible to go into the presence of the Father. 
it's very, very sober. Uh, in one sense, a very... Um, Oh, what, I'm getting old. I can't think of words sometimes. A uh, dignified appearance. It should be formal, I guess, is the word I'm looking for in a lot of respects. Although there is a lot of variation in how we can approach God. Sometimes you approach Him as the omnipotent Father in heaven. And I try to open prayers because He, he says, glorify God at the beginning of the sample prayer to give Him honor and glory and praise and hallelujah, whatever, we preface our prayer. Unless we're going off the road, then we say, God help, or oh my God, or something like that, calling out to God, and He understands the circumstance. And sometimes, I think we'll find as we go through some scriptures, we approach Him somewhat more informally. Now, church service is a formal addressing of God. So we have a formal prayer at the beginning and another one of thanksgiving and praise at the end. And being a formal situation, a commanded assembly where we're all told, you come before God as a unit, as a group, as a family, as a body, then that is a formal type of circumstance and, re and requires a formal prayer. That's why we ask that people not be flitting through their books or trying to get organized or, or whatever during a prayer. A prayer should be sacrosanct. There shouldn't be anything going on but you trying to connect with God. We bow our heads as a sign of submission. Sometimes we bow our knees, and he tells us about bowing our knees. Sometimes we fall on our faces depending on the circumstance. But here in a formal prayer, we're addressing our Father in heaven, the ruler of the entire universe. And our whole attention should be on that prayer. I talked about that one time uh, in terms of even respect for a, a teacher, of much less God, because I was in a class in Ambassador College one time, Garner Ted Armstrong was giving the lecture. And the bell rang. Well, people started scurrying to get their books and their briefcases and their stuff together to leave. Because when they heard the bell, to them, that was the end of the class. And he stopped in the middle of a sentence. And he said... Why are you doing that? Why are you busying yourself and making noise and distracting each other? I am the professor here. I am doing the teaching. The bell just rings, but I'm the one that ends the class. It isn't the bell. The bell isn't the teacher. If the bell was the teacher, let's just ring it for an hour. Let's not. So we, he got us. You know, here I was, packing things up, getting ready to go. And he was right. And as soon as he said that, he turned and walked out. If you're done, I'm certainly done. So, we should have shown more respect toward even a human teacher than that. And before God, 
There shouldn't be a peep. You shouldn't hear a pin drop during a prayer because our attention should be focused on our Father in heaven. Christ says here, He's the true vine. My Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, the reason I'm reading this is this is leading up to a discussion about friendship, which he's going to get to in a few verses. He's laying some parameters here to recognize in a relationship who is who and what is what. Now, if you're going to have friends, you like to know where you stand with your friends, don't you? Sometimes it's said of somebody, well, at least you always know where you stand with that person. Usually that means somebody who's willing to tell any and everybody what they think, which can be wise and which is sometimes foolish. But to be open and to be able to understand each other and stand and know where you are in a relationship is very, very important. Now, he's going to be talking about friendship with God here in a few verses. So I'm going through this to see how he lays the ground for what a relationship with friends should be and what they should understand about each other. It's been said, let's say, of the ministry, in fact. Well, you can't be friends with the congregation. Uh, and in fact, some organizations, and it included worldwide up to a great degree, uh, it was like in business. Mr. Armstrong used to say, well, you, you can't uh, mix with the employees. The, the managers and the owners have to be over here and the employees over there. Because if they mix together, then disrespect begins to come because familiarity breeds contempt. And that is very often the case. It truly is. And in the military, same way. you got the officer's mess, and then you got the mess of everybody else that the officers look upon as a mess, not just food. <laughs> I'm doing a little play on words there. But to some degree, there is a separation. And in some respects, that's valid. But I think I can show you that it is not entirely valid uh, that we should be able to all be parts of one body together and each respect and think well of each other as part of the body. Now, there is a head on a body, most generally. <laughs> I've heard stories of headless men out in the swamp, but uh, I never saw one. I just ran from a few. <laughs> because uh, you didn't know when the, the booger man was going to get you as you headed for the door at night. But a body has a head, and we recognize Christ is the head of the body spiritually, and the ministry then has to be the spokesman, uh, the watchman. Many different factors are there that he's supposed to fulfill, and the rest of the body has to have a certain respect for that office. And the man in the office needs to have respect for the office as well. 
Because if you don't have all of that, then problems arise. And because we are human, problems always do arise. So we need to understand the parameters, and that's what Christ is talking about here, so that we can all get along in the way that he intends us to get along. So he says, he's the vine that we're attached to. If you're attached to it, that means that there's a close relationship there, right? You can take a hatchet and chop a branch off of a tree and leave it within a quarter of an inch of the tree, but the relationship's gone. There's no connection anymore. What happens to that branch that you cut off and laid right next to where it had been? It withers and dies because the connection is broken. So close isn't enough. There's got to be connection. You can put something in an electrical outlet. If you stick it in just a little bit, nothing happens. Stick it in just a little more, and suddenly there's connection and things make noise and whir. But the connection has to be made, and it has to be a good connection, like the electrical outlet. If it's kind of you're holding it and you've got the palsy a little bit and it's wiggling, it'll go off and on, off and on, off and on, off and on. So it's got to be poked all the way in so that there's a firm connection, and then things work without a lot of stutter and, and problems and disconnection. So he says, if you're connected to me, uh, you'll produce fruit. If you're not connected to him, there's no way you can produce fruit. That branch laying very close will not produce any fruit. Got to be connected. Every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, he wants, on his vine, us to produce a great deal. Now, if you have a fruit tree or a grapevine, and it produces a few little knotty pieces of fruit or a few little dried-up grapes, you're not real happy with that. So you prune it and get new growth so that that new growth might produce more fruit. And then on a year where you don't get a frost and things have been trimmed up properly and it's, there's enough water, and you get a bountiful crop on your tree. Oh, you're so happy. Your grapes just, oh, there's more, more grapes there than you can make wine out of. That's a kind that you want. Now, we'll find that Christ is the same way. If you bear fruit, I'm going to trim you down. I'm going to prune you. I'm going to dig and dung you, water you with my word, the Word, the Spirit of God, that you might bring forth even more. So his whole attitude here is that he wants those connected to him to produce a bounteous crop. You don't look to him and say, well, you know, I did do something good last month or last year, or <laughs> however far you need to cast back, or just a little while ago, maybe an hour ago, who knows. But he's not looking for dried up or half-rotten fruit. I think as I explained in that, that analogy of the apple of his eye, he's looking for something that is pleasing in every way to be his fruit, 
And not only that, then here we find that he wants a lot of fruit. So he wants you to be productive as a Christian, and we're going to find as a friend. So he wants you to bring forth. In other words, he's positive. That's what we need to get from this. He's positive about our lives. If we produce anything, he wants us to do even more. He wants it to be bountiful. It's the way he looks at things. And he made us to look at fruits and vi- fruit trees and vines the same way. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. He changes the subject just a little bit. But you can't bring forth spiritual fruit unless you are spiritually clean. So it's connected here. If we're doing all kinds of things we shouldn't be doing, we're not going to produce spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit is something that only comes through him, through his spirit. So when he says you're clean, he says, the words that I've spoken to you are cleansing. When you read the word of God, it helps clean your mind up. When you read things that are ungodly and not of God, or watch them on a TV or a screen somewhere, it doesn't clean your mind up. It perverts it. It makes it worse. It makes it wicked. It makes it unclean spiritually. So when we look at his words, he says, the things I've told you make you clean. You don't read Bibles. You don't read your Bible just because somebody said you'll be more spiritual if you read your Bible every day. It's like, okay, if you wash your hands for five minutes with soap, they'll be cleaner, and therefore you use soap. A means to an end, simply, in a way. But we read the Bible so that it will clean our minds, clean our emotions, so that our thinking will be more godly. Because... What you read, what you see, what you do, is what you are. So if you read this book a lot, you'll be a lot more like God. Because His words are cleansing. A tree has to have conditions right in order to produce a bountiful crop. And we have to have conditions right to produce a bountiful spiritual crop. So he's the connection we have to make, and his words are what put us in condition to produce good spiritual fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. Now, a friendship, we're going to find, is a two-way street. He tells us to abide in him... And if we will do that, then he will abide in us. So our minds then are joined. And we lay hands on someone's head after baptism to ask God to give them his Holy Spirit. You don't lay hands on their elbow because they don't think with their elbow. And God's Spirit isn't joined to their elbow. It's joined with their brain. That's what we think and react with is our head. So that's why when we are begotten of God's Spirit, it's through our mind that is being transformed. 
And then as the mind is transformed, the acts of the body also begin to be transformed so that our hands and our feet, our bodies do godly things instead of ungodly things. So, leading up to friendship, he's saying it's got to be a two-way street. You can't, you can't have a friend if you're the only one that cares. You've got to have two people that care. So he says, I care, and if you care, and we abide together, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. So to do spiritual things and to have spiritual fruit, if you're not truly connected to Christ, it won't happen. It can't happen. Because by nature, we are not of the spirit, we're of the carnal mind, the normal human mind. And that doesn't produce spiritual things. So this connection is all important. He reiterates, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Let's, let's get this, <laughs> he says. He repeats it. Let's remember who here is the one that provides the life. The branch doesn't provide succor or food for the vine. The vine does for the branch. So, there's nothing we can do to help him become more spiritual or produce spiritual fruit. There's not a thing we have to give him to make him more spiritual. But he has a lot to give us to make us more spiritual. So that's what he's saying. Abide in me. And I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, there are a lot of people on this earth that are doing things. They're building buildings, they're building bridges, they're uh, teaching school, they're eating, they're farming. They're doing something, but it doesn't have spiritual value. And unless there's spiritual value, there's really no ultimate value. There may be value as far as sustaining human life uh, by eating and so on, but there's nothing that will abide beyond the grave. So something spiritual then is something that has to do with the future, not the present. But he uses a physical analogy here that we as humans might better understand it. But as far as any spiritual thing of value that will last, only through him. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Branch isn't connected, he isn't abiding in Christ, he'll get cast forth. And it withers. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Because unless they're connected to the vine, they don't produce anything, so you might as well burn them and get the trash out of the way because there's nothing of value there. If we're not truly connected to God, then there's nothing really of value in us. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Now, there are a lot of people out there in the world who think that they're connected to Christ, uh, and yet... They pray a lot of prayers and don't seem to get answers uh, because they're not connected 
Now, he makes some conditions here that we have to abide in him, and it can't be a false relationship. It has to be a true relationship through his words. Well, his words tell us everything we should do and everything we shouldn't do. And those who are looking to him for answers to their prayer will tell you that most of his words are done away with. That his law isn't in effect. And that the Old Testament doesn't mean anything except Psalms and Proverbs have some nice sayings. So they've done away with over half the Bible and the, the heart and core of Christ's teachings in the New Testament, they've also done away with. So they don't have much left. Except Jesus and expect grace and you're in, baby. That's all there is to it. Now, are they fulfilling what we're reading here? You shall ask... If Wait a minute. Where, where is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Every word of God is for instruction in righteousness. Thy word is truth, John seventeen seventeen. So all these words are here to instruct us in how to produce spiritual fruit that will abide into the kingdom of God, because that's the only fruit that matters, is the eternal fruit. So when we say produce fruit, uh, it can include a lot of good deeds done to human beings, because that can be reckoned as righteousness and fruit for the future. When God judges our lives, He judges us on what we did here. So those things that we do to, for, each other are accounted as eternal fruit. Something that will last. So his words have to abide in us if we're going to produce spiritual fruit. And if that is the case, he says, you can ask what you will and it shall be done to you. Now that is a huge and wide open statement. But it has to be within the words of God. <laughs> because that's the only thing that he says he will respond to. If my words are in you, you ask anything, and it'll be done. Now, that limits it a great deal, because there are a lot of things we might desire or want that aren't in the book as human beings. And so, when we go to him with that request, we'll be ignored, because he's not in that. If it isn't in here, it doesn't count. That's why we need to know this book. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So we need to grasp that anything that we do here on this earth toward the kingdom of God is something that glorifies our Father in heaven. Now, we can say very easily, and I frequently do, beginning or end of almost every prayer, to you be the glory. So we want to give God glory. Well, that's only words, 
unless it's backed up with something. A lot of people will say, well, we need to glorify God. What does that mean? How do you define glorifying God? It's by doing what his words say, and therefore producing something worthwhile for now and primarily the future. So if you're going to glorify God, it's going to be in taking good care of George and Evan and Jessica and Brian and all of us. You glorify God by treating each other the way we should treat each other. That glorifies our Father in heaven. But here are some people down here, out of billions, who are willing to actually do what his words say and treat each other that way. And if we treat each other as God would treat us, then that produces something worthwhile. Something that he puts on our ledger and says, all right, when I make my judgment, and we're under judgment now, you know that. When I make this final judgment, I will keep in mind and consider this, 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 and this in what these people have done, how they've lived. As to whether he wants to give us the gift of eternal life or whether he says, eh, not, not enough fruit there to convince me. No. But he created us with nothing but good in mind. I had somebody tell me the other day, God is going to really enjoy this end time where all these people are going to be killed. And I says, that's crazy. And they said, oh no, read the Bible. God is going to take pleasure in all this. No. He says he takes pleasure in the death of his saints. He does say that. Why? Because he wanted to kill them? He wanted to get rid of them? No. If you're truly one of his saints and your name is written in the book of life, and you die in a position where he has judged you worthy of being the bride of Christ, then that's precious to him. There's one that made it to the end of his life faithful and true. That's precious to me. So it's not a negative emotion. It's a positive one. Because he tells us endure to the end and some won't. Now, if those who are living and don't endure spiritually to the end and they die, he's not going to take any pleasure in that. But if you go through whatever tests, trials, and troubles he lays on you, and you succeed and you win, ultimately, you might not overcome something for a long time, but maybe you finally get to the point that you overcome that. And then you die. And he's going to say, wow. Another one in. This is good. See, death physically means nothing to him. It means quite a bit to us sometimes. But to him, it's nothing because he knows how to resurrect. And we don't. We can't do that thing. But he can. So to him, it's not a big deal. To us, it is. And we want to become righteous before the first resurrection or be in it if we've died. So that's all important to us, and it is to him. But if he sees we die in the faith, 
All right, that's good. He loves that. Death of the wicked? No. God isn't that way. He didn't create us out of animosity and hate. Do you really think that? People think God is angry, and I'm going to get you for that, and that's his attitude. Now, let me ask you this in this context. Do you want to have somebody for a friend who's always saying, one of these days I'm going to get you. One of these days I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to badmouth you. You don't want a friend that's badmouthing you all the time, do you? No, you want somebody that will defend you. I remember one of the things that impressed me very highly or very heavily when I got to know my wife Marla. Before we were dating or anything, I knew her as a member of the, of the church. And if there was a conversation going on, a bunch of people together, and words would turn against somebody, as often they do, even yet, she would say, well, that person does this, though. She'd, she'd compliment them on something. Or would she say, wait a minute, let's give them benefit of the doubt. You know, there. She would defend the one that was being stabbed. And that impressed me. Because you don't too often see that. And that's the kind of friend you want. As people start stabbing you in the back, a real friend will say, hey, 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 wait a minute, let's put the knives away. He or she is not all bad. And do we are we supposed to talk about and um, focus on the bad? Or does God tell us to focus on the good? He does, Philippians 4.8. We're not supposed to be bad-mouthing. And we quote Philippians 4.8, and then we do just the opposite. Because we're human and still carnal. So it impressed me that Almost invariably, she would say something good. And that happens so rarely among human beings as a whole that it really impressed me. And I, I remembered it later on as we began to get a, a deeper relationship. Here's a person who'll stand up for the guy that's down that everybody's stomping on. Impressive. It's so rare that it has to be impressive among human relationships. And that's the kind of friend you want. Somebody that won't kick you when you're down will actually maybe come over and help pick you up even. That's the kind of friend you want. So that may have been one of the things that went through your mind when we first started the subject today. Somebody that's there for me, or as I... As Isaiah 40 says, faithfulness of a friend, the loyalty of a friend. He's there for you. Well, Christ says he's there for us. And that God did not create us in order to destroy us. There are whole religions who think that God is against us all, and he's trying to find a way to send us to hell. And that's the way they preach. You're all going to hell. That isn't a loving God. You don't 
make things, let's say you're in the kitchen and you decide to cook dinner. And you think, I am going to make the worst possible meal I can so that everybody's going to throw it in the garbage instead of eat it. I hate these people at my table, and I am going to get them something truly awful. I'm going to send them to culinary hell. No, you don't think that way. You think lovingly. People are coming to eat, my family, my friends, whoever, and I'm going to fix something that hopefully they'll like. And then maybe we're so worried about it that even as they eat it, we look at their face. <laughs> or we ask, do you like that? Because we're insecure maybe or whatever. Uh, and we want compliments. There's, yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it. But a lot of the things we do for friends is because we want something or we want to be complimented or whatever because we want something out of it. If there's a friendship, you want something out of it. Well, so does the other person. You both want something out of it, or you wouldn't be connected. Now, God wants something out of this, or he wouldn't have dreamed this up and cooked it, this humanity that we're living. He had a good purpose in mind. He wanted to share eternity with us and share peace and security and love and kindness and gentleness and all the things that we as humans desire but rarely achieve is what he wants for us. <coughs> so when we bear much fruit, much good, good fruit is tasty, it's juicy, it's, uh, it's just pleasant in every way. And when we produce good fruit then that glorifies Him. He says, that's what I wanted to happen. What I really wanted to happen was for Adam and Eve to tell Satan to lie to Shuck. Get out of here. We have God. And He gave us this beautiful garden. And He gave us each other. And we're both wonderful looking human beings. And everything here just works perfectly. Satan, Go! Instead, they said, oh, here's something else that looks pretty good and might taste all right. Think I'll have some. Oops. We weren't faithful to God. We weren't faithful to the one that gave us everything we could possibly want. And he knew that he had created us with that kind of nature. He knew it would be contrary to him. He was not at all surprised when Adam and Eve listened to Satan. And he hasn't been surprised when we have ever since. He made us this way on purpose. As evil as you are, he did it to you on purpose. Not to ultimately destroy you, but ultimately to save you from what you are. Satan was a created being. And it was wonderful. The relationship between the Father and the Son and Satan was a beautiful relationship, as with the other angels. Wonderful. There was never any problem. And then vanity began to enter a little bit. And then he began to compare himself to God and say, 
I'm as good as you are. And then he began to think, you know, I am so smart, I could probably run things better than he could. So he talked to a third of the angels that were following him, and he had always given them good advice. He had always led them in the proper way. They had no reason to think he would lead them astray. And he's very subtle. So he began, I'm sure, with very, very subtle little suggestions that began to appeal to their essential ego and vanity that was beneath the surface. And then it began to bubble out. And then it came into a full-blown rebellion against God. And that upset God's universe. There was war in heaven. There were planets tossed to and fro. It was a major war between God and two-thirds of the animal and Satan, uh, angels, and Satan and another third. It wreaked havoc with the peace and tranquility and love that had been and destroyed very, very deep relationships and friendship is what it did. Now, God is a God who, by His very nature, loves to share. He loves to give. He loves to bless. He loves to help. And Satan rebelled to the point he was beyond help. He would be a an adversary, an accuser, a hater from then on. Now, that did not change God's character. God still wanted to love and to give and to share because that's what He is. So, having created Satan who ultimately rebelled against Him, He never wants to see that happen in His universe again. Okay? So his thinking when he created us was, I want to make beings that are in my image. I want to give them a mind beyond that of what a cat or a slug has, a brain that can think, and I will impart into that brain a spirit in man which is very closely akin to the Spirit in God, in that it gives us intelligence. It gives us logic, the capacity for limited creativity and so on that the animals don't have. Now, it does not impart the Spirit of God. The Spirit in man is just what an added ingredient to your brain. You've got a brain just like a cow or a dog, essentially. But you've got something that God combined with it to give you an intelligence beyond that of the animals. So that brain and that spirit in man gives you the potential to become like God is. And he gives his spirit, his Holy Spirit then, his mind, his essence, to them that obey him. Now, why is that? Because Satan came to the point where he disobeyed him, 
And therefore, it severed the relationship, the friendship, if you could call it that. Because it was as close as you could get. And then it became as hateful and as bad as you can get. Satan is the outright absolute enemy of God. He is the outright absolute enemy of every one of us human beings, and especially those who try to seek to obey God, because he hates anybody who will be in obedience to God. So, yeah, Satan hated Hitler. He did. He hates all humans. Hitler could still be in the kingdom of God. I believe that. He never understood the Word of God. He never understood anything about God. He was never given a chance at salvation. And God said He's going to give everyone a chance. There's nothing in the Bible that condemns any one person to the lake of fire. Nothing. Nowhere. It mentions some who were close. Esau, and uh, perhaps uh, Judas. But even Judas was never converted. Judas heard Christ's words, but he never understood them. And even said the other apostles weren't yet converted. They had heard everything he said, but then he told Peter, when you are converted, feed my sheep. He could not be converted until he not only had the spirit in man, which gave him intelligence, it was only when he would receive the spirit of God that he would be converted, which happened in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit came and sat on them in a miracle situation. Normally it's by the laying on of hands, but in that case, cloven tongues of fire. So, we are here as enemies of God by nature. Virtually everything a human being wants to do is contrary to God in some way. And that's why the world looks like it looks. But God wants to give us all eternal life. But He knows there's always the potential in us, if He just makes us human and then gives us His Spirit, that at some point we will rebel. Now, He gave Adam and Eve a mind that did not understand evil. They had the Spirit in man, but it was He did not give them the additional understanding to know good from evil. All they saw was good. That's all they saw. But He knew He had created within them Potential, and very likely potential, that if given a chance, they would rebel against him. The first chance they got, I'm out of here. We're like that. We start rebelling against conditions that God has created the second we're born. I don't like air. I don't like this. I want to go back in the womb. And I'm going to rebel against having to suck air if nothing else. Because by nature, we're contrary to God. We don't come out of the womb saying, I love God. I want to obey God. I want to serve God. We come out of the womb 
ready to say no to any and everything. We learn the word no a lot quicker as a child than we do the word yes. We're told the word no more than we're told the word yes as babies and children. Because we're contrary to our parents. We're rebellious against any and everything that doesn't feel good, taste good, look good, or something we want. And if they tell us something we don't want, I mean, from just from babyhood we're that way. Now, God made us that way for a very good reason. And that is so that we would learn to deal with the way we are and come to hate the way we are and not live in such a way that produces broken marriages, broken relationships, uh, all the things that man does down here that make us miserable. And people try to put on a stiff upper lip and appear to be happy, but if you really get into it with them and start talking about the way things really are, they're worried about a kid who's going the wrong way and a mate that's on drugs and, you know, on and on it goes in every family you come across. There's problems everywhere. Because that is human nature. So God gave us this nature and he says, I want you to fight it. I want you to learn to overcome it. And I want you, by the time you have reached the end of your life on this earth, to where if I change your mind and make it where it no longer wants to do bad stuff, that the very instant some thought of rebellion against God came into your mind 16 billion years from now, you would immediately reflect on what that caused back here when you were a human. And you'd say, no! Instead of like Adam and Eve, yeah! You know, there's a lot of things people could suggest to you as a human being, and your mind would immediately say, yeah! Still! When it ought to be saying, nah! It's our very nature. So he wants us to get sick and tired of it. That's the whole point. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom. You'll have trials. You'll have tests to see how you want to be. I know how you want to be, but what are you going to be? So then he begins to change our minds and teach us his words, his truth, and we start accepting it. And then we begin to realize, you know, what he says I ought to be in here isn't what I am. So a conversion process begins where we're actually trying to do what he says instead of what our nature dictates that we should do. So we begin to make changes. And he says, by their fruit you shall know them. So when it comes time to baptize somebody, they say, I want to be part of God's church. Oh, okay. Do you understand these words? Have you come to understand who God is, what He is, and what He wants from you? Because conversion is a process. As we learn His words, we say, okay, I will accept that. You remember the process. 
when you began to read some booklets from Ambassador College? Why were you born? A lot of people say, why are we on this earth anyway? You know, we just come and we live and we have families and we die. What are we here for? And they have no answer, really, except to go to heaven, sit on a pink cloud and play a harp. And that doesn't appeal to me as a forever thing. You know, it's like the guy who's supposedly in heaven sitting on his cloud. Says, Man, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. And what kind of future is that? Just sit. I, I get tired of sitting real fast. I want to be up and do something. Because God made us to move. And if we sit around in a sedentary life and don't move much, our health goes to pot. And we die early, maybe, or whatever. So, there's a process there. You learn. I mean, you love lobsters. You love clams. Oh, pig every morning for breakfast. And then you read in here that God says, I didn't make that for food. I made cows and sheep and goats and deer and elk and so on for food. I didn't make pigs for food. And you say, wait a minute. There's a scripture back here in New Testament where he said he cleansed all things, and, and I believe that. And then somebody explains that he's talking about people, not pigs. And sooner or later you say, okay, God, no more pigs, no more oysters, no more clams, because you made it, and you said it's not good for us. I'm not going to eat it. So that is a moment forward in your conversion. You're converting to what you were, to what God wants you to be. And that's a process. It takes time. And as I told you a week or two ago, none of you are converted. Like, you know, people kind of jump back. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You're partially converted. That's the best you'll ever get in this life is partially because God is totally, if we could use the word convert, He didn't have to change. He was just that way. Perfect. And none of us are. Until our last breath, we won't be. But could we be a whole lot closer to what He is and what He wants us to be than we are today? Yeah, now that's possible. That's a conversion process. Where one thing at a time, you say, okay, that's the way God looks at it. So I'll do it his way instead of the way, world's way. Proverbs comes to mind. There is a way that seems right to a man. Yeah, it seems right. That's what I need to go do. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. Take it real simple. I want to go to the bar. I got friends at the bar. I want to get drunk. So you go to the bar, and that seems the right thing to do what I want to do right now. That must be the right thing to do. I'm going to go do it. So there you are, a fool on a stool, getting drunk. And you're among your friends. But there's a guy down the bar who hears you talking, and he doesn't like the sound of your voice. So he comes down there because there's a way that seems right to him, and the way that seems right to him is to shut you up. So he jerks you off the stool and pounds you real good or stabs you or shoots you or whatever. 
in the way that seemed right to you may wind up in death in that bar room. And the way that seemed right to him might be to kill you in that bar room. So for neither of you does it really work out. I've been in a few bars a long time ago, mostly. You know, I never found much there that was like God. There just wasn't much there that was like God. I've been to Vegas. You know, everything that's there basically is illegal, stupid, or immoral. There's just not much in Vegas that you can go to to become more like God. It ain't going to happen there. It'll happen in this book because His words cleanse the filth that is our mind. And He wants us to fight that as a human being until... He's convinced that if I give that one glory and eternal life, he'll never rebel against me because he's been through the ringer down there. The army thinks in somewhat the same way. We'll put them through boot camp. And they, if they rebel in boot camp, oh my, does the master sergeant get on you. So by the time you get through that training, you will either have become submissive to those over you, or you will be in serious trouble in <laughs> solitary confinement or whatever, or court-martialed and released with a bad record, which makes it hard to be employed and succeed in life there ever after, dishonorably discharged. Well, God's, in a way, doing the same thing. He's either going to give us honor and glory and eternal life, or He's going to give us a dishonorable discharge and burn us up in the lake of fire so that we won't be miserable forever and make others around us miserable forever. He just can't have that. He's not going to have another Satan. In that one, He's going to bind and His fallen angels with Him where they cannot communicate will never be heard from again throughout all eternity. Now, he had created them with eternal life. And he cannot take back that gift. So he's going to have to simply isolate them because they're bad actors. So having done that once, he's not going to allow it with us. He is not going to give us immortality and eternal life unless he is convinced that we're his friends, not his enemies. And they will never, ever turn on him. Great is his faithfulness. We heard it in the song. And he is looking for our faithfulness to be great as well. So that we will be as faithful to him as he is to us. Now there's the essence of true friendship. Faithfulness both ways. He's laying the groundwork here pretty heavily for what he has to say a little later on because we're not supposed to take it lightly. Okay? Let's go on then. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. It's to his glory, to his honor, that we will go against the world and go to God. 
I think I have written down in my notes a scripture that comes to mind right now where uh, he says, if we're friends of the world, we're his enemies. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. But even in that statement, he says, if we're friends of the world, we're his enemies, means that if the world's our enemy, he's our friend. So that's already going to be established back here in John 15. And when Paul quotes it later on, in that statement, he's saying you can be God's friend. But it has to work both ways. So he is really tickled pink if we bear much fruit. And that's to his honor that he is able to be, he is able to help us do that. He's on our side. He wants to help us be what we need to be. Who could you have on your side? You know, we used to choose up teams in school for basketball or football or whatever. And there were one or two or three that always got chosen first. And then those that got chosen last. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of, there was a wide range of emotions there between those who had been given the opportunity to choose their team and then those they chose. And there were animosities and jealousies and uh, all kinds of feelings of being left out. I'm always the last one chosen. Nobody wants me. That's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Nobody wants me. Well, God so loved the world. Every human being that ever lives, that he wants them. He wants them on his team. He wants them in his kingdom. So he's pulling for everybody, even the losers. I think we could include Judas, Hitler, Mussolini, Napoleon, Barack Obama, Swallow Hard, Hillary Clinton. He's all for them. He ain't going to call them in this life because he says, they're not going to listen to me now. But after they die in this holocaust that's coming, maybe they'll come up in the second resurrection with a different attitude. And they'll be instructed. Now, you lived on earth, and it was hell on earth, and you gave hell to everybody else. Now, I'm here to give you life. And I'm here to tell you you're not going to live the way the Democratic National Party told you. You're going to live my way. Or, you get to die again. Forever. Oh, what you got to say? They might be ready to listen then. So God condemns none of them. He does say that there were some in danger. But that it wasn't the final judgment because Esau was never converted. Neither was Hitler, and neither was Judas. And he does not say that they're going into the lake of fire. God does name a lot of people who are going to be in his kingdom. Hebrews 11, other places. These have made it. These are going to be there, the apostles. They're going to be there. Names them by name. Why? To encourage us that some have done it. But he doesn't say about anybody that they haven't done it, that they can't be there. Because that would discourage us. No, he wants to encourage us. 
So he gives us a list of people who have done it. And he says, follow them. Do what they did. I'll give you eternal life. So he's all for us. He's for the most despicable human beings who ever lived. That they repent and turn it around and become like him. And they can live forever in unity and harmony and love throughout the ages. All they got to do is change. I say all, but just try it. How quickly do we change? Human beings change pretty slow, usually. You hang up the side down by the heels in a well, they'll change quicker. <laughs> you can hang an atheist upside down in a well, and he'll be hollering, God! Pretty quickly. And if God says, well, all you have to do is obey me and I'll get you out of there. Then the atheist says, anybody else up there? There's an old joke about that. Because we don't want to submit to God by nature. And by His Spirit, He gives us that capacity. But even then, we change pretty slowly as human beings. You've had attitudes that you might have had for 30, 40, 50 years that are still wrong attitudes, bad attitudes, that you still have to work on every day. Oh, pick one. Patience. Just pick one. You know, it's real easy. That one just came to mind. God, give me patience and give it to me now. (laughs) We've used that one probably. Because by nature, we're impatient. We want what we want, and we want it now. And that's something that has to change. We need to want what God wants, what our friends, our neighbors, our mate wants, and give it to them as soon as we can, instead of getting what we want and getting it now. So, that's just, that's just one emotion. It's patience. And there's many others that we have the same problem with, and it's hard to overcome that. It's hard. If you tend to be impatient, it's hard to become patient. If you're a worrier, God says, don't worry. But you're a worry ward. You've always been a worry ward. How hard is that to change? How hard is that one? I, I could name 50 things here that we change slowly on. But he tells us, by my spirit, you can overcome that. So read my words, cleanse your mind, and come to be like I am. I'm patient, I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm gentle. You can make me angry. Yes, you can. And I will punish you. I will chasten you as a father does a child. Why? Why does he, pay? Why does he chasten us? Why does he punish us? Same reason I did my kids. You're being a brat. You're being selfish. You're being rebellious. You're being undesirable to be around, quite frankly. So I'm going to paddle your butt until you get sweet and compliant and loving and respectful. And then we'll get along. And I'll enjoy having you here. But right now, I just soon you go to your room and stay there. Because you're not much fun. So, when we upset God, He'll paddle us. It says so there in Hebrews 12. 
And if he says, if, I, if you don't love your child, and I don't love you, then I won't chasten you. And the kid doesn't think you're doing you in love, does he? <laughs> you're pounding mama behind. That doesn't feel like love to me. But you know that it's going to straighten him up. And knowing that it'll straighten him up, you're doing it because you love him and you want him to be lovable. And on his own, he's not going to become lovable. He'll keep being selfish. So you've got to do something, whether take something away from him, or tan his hide, or whatever you need to do to discipline, so that he'll get the point that, hey, this isn't working for me. <laughs> Smiling and being sweet and saying please and yes sir and no sir works for me. Takes him a while to learn that it works for him. Because he thinks the other's going to work. If I kick him in the shin, he'll do what I say. That's, just, that's stinking thinking. He ought to know better than that, but he doesn't because he's human and he's carnal and he's selfish. So he's going to try to get it his way. And when, as a parent, you are bound by God not to let him get it his way. It's through peace and love only that he can get his way. I want a cookie. Give me a cookie. That'll get you a lot of cookies. Honey, I married you. I'm sorry, it was a mistake. You're really kind of ugly, and I can't stand the sound of your voice. Can we go to bed and have some fun? That'll get you lots of cookies. <laughs> Come on, you know. Think the way God thinks. You're the most beautiful woman on earth to me. I love you. I treasure you. You... you I just can't stand not to be around you and to hug you and to hold your hand. And, uh, oh, the food you fix for me is just so wonderful. And Oh, God just gave you to me as my angel. Now, that'll get you some cookies. That's God's way. Sweet, honest, loving, kind, gentle. But we fight it, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes you treat your mate pretty good. Sometimes you don't do so well because we're human and we're up and down and sometimes we do it God's way and sometimes we do it our way. Well, Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. Well, where's your old buddy Frank today? Worms have probably pretty well got him eaten up. And he won't be in the first resurrection as part of the bride of Christ because he was never converted. So, yeah, he did it his way, and he's dead. He's going to stay that way till the second resurrection. Am I done already? I guess so. If you bear much fruit, you'll be my disciples. So let's stop right there, and we'll pick this up again next week, God willing and actually get to the friendship part. But this is laying a groundwork because friends are valuable. And friendship with God is the most valuable friendship and relationship there is. So I think it's... I mean, I thought I could maybe get through this in one sermon, but it may take five. I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. But that doesn't matter because there's nothing really much... There's nothing 
anywhere near as important as our relationship with God. And that being close and peaceful and loving. So it's worth some time to get into it.